Hello, my name is Beatrice Setnik. I'm the Chief Scientific Officer at Alta Sciences and an adjunct professor at the University of Toronto, Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology. Our clinical sites at Alta Sciences are well known and recognized for their expertise in conduct of human abuse potential and substance use disorder studies. These studies have served as important evaluations for new drugs in development. We evaluate the likelihood that a new drug may be abused and provide clinical data that is used to decide whether a drug will need to be scheduled under the Controlled Substances Act. Drug abuse continues to be an epidemic, and our continued research in this area is always augmented when we have the opportunity to learn from individuals who abuse drugs. Understanding the availability of drugs, doses used, routes of administration, and the personal struggles of those who abuse them are integral to understand the evolving and ever-changing patterns of drug abuse. Several of our past study volunteers have graciously agreed to an interview to share their personal stories and history of drug abuse with you. This series, titled The Many Faces of Recreational Drug Use, a series of candid interviews of personal drug use histories, will include conversations with volunteers who abuse drugs sporadically for recreational purposes and those who are struggling with a more severe form of substance use disorder. This series will also include special guests who will provide further commentary. I hope you find their stories both touching and insightful. Today, I'm joined with my colleague, Dr. Deborah Kelsch, who is a psychiatrist and principal investigator at Alta Sciences. Dr. Kelsch oversees many of the clinical human abuse potential and substance use disorder studies that we conduct at our clinic site in Kansas. Today's interview is with a male, age 24, who is a recreational polydrug user who is not physically dependent on drugs. We will follow the interview with a brief commentary and discussion. We hope you enjoy today's podcast and will now begin. Okay, so for the record, if you wouldn't mind stating your sex and age. I am a male and I am 24 years of age. And if you could tell us a little bit about your history with experimenting with recreational drugs, uh, what age you started at and what kind of drugs you've used over the years. Um, so I started using recreational drugs about 13 years of age. I say I started beginning with pain pills, so things of that sort. And um, as I got older, you know, I kind of tried this thing and this thing and so on and so forth. Okay, so what the pain pills that you started when you were 13, was that because of a prescription that you had for a pain condition or was it just that you got it from friends that were using it? Uh, just friends that was using it, you know, being parties and everything else and that sort. So yeah, just being around friends, definitely recreational, yeah. Uh, do you recall what kind of opioids you first started using? What it was? <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, actually, I believe it was Vicodin. And you wouldn't know what strength of the tablets or pills uh, no, they were? No. no That's no. okay. But you were taking them orally or were you using them in a different way than uh, just swallowing orally? Okay. So you started off with pain pills, Vicodin, mm -hmm. you, you're taking them orally. Uh, and then uh, tell us a little bit more about some of the other um, things that you've used over the years. I also took, if we're talking pain pills, you know, after, you know, the Vicodin and everything, I started getting into um, oxycodone and everything mm -hmm. like that. So something a little stronger. And if when I was, you know, taking those at the time, I would, you know, generally take, I think, 10 milligrams, I believe what it is. Okay. And yeah, that's that's about it, honestly, um, so far as opiates. Mm -hmm. um, 
And when you started taking the oxycodone around 10 milligrams, you were still taking those orally or did you yes. use those by other routes? Okay, so you've always used opiates yes. orally. Okay. Are there any other types of drugs that you've experimented with over the years? And Yes, cocaine and also ecstasy mm -hmm. and um, LSD. That's, yeah, mm -hmm. that's about it. Yes, that's about it. Yeah. Okay. And marijuana wasn't, you, you haven't... Of course, of course, of course. Okay. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, marijuana. Okay. And are you a smoker or a non-smoker? Uh, I am a smoker. I am a smoker. Yeah, I am a smoker. And so can you give us a little bit of a snapshot into, say, um, let's think about like the past 90 days. Have you used any of these types of drugs? Uh, what kind of settings do you use them under? And if you can kind of walk us through how you normally go about encountering these types of drugs and what you do with them okay normally when i first started beginning you know taking these drugs recreationally it will always be in a setting uh, around people socially mm -hmm. or that sort of thing um as i got older experiencing with it, you know more and more i started doing it by myself really okay in the last 90 days i'll say if i use any in a week i probably use twice a week so in the last 90 days, I could probably say probably 14 times I've used it. Or so okay. on and, so forth. and that's for opioids or that's for any drug? That's for benzos, actually, a Xanax, correct? Yeah, that's benzos, Xanax, yeah. Okay, so Xanax, you're more using Xanax than you are some of the others, like the cocaine, the opioids. Correct. Okay, correct. So Xanax is the only thing that you're using right now? Oh, uh, and smoking weed. I mean, weed. you know, yeah, it's it's one of those things to where, you know, I kind of <laughs> jump around one minute, I'm, I'll be messing with mm -hmm. this or, you know. So how is the Xanax? So you kind of shifted and you've had quite a lot of experience with different classes of drugs. So you've done the stimulants, you've done the ecstasy, you've tried the cocaine, the LSD, opioids, the oxycodone and the Vicodin and Xanax. So can you kind of describe to us, do you have a preference now for Xanax? Does Xanax give you something that's kind of more attractive now in, in this point of your life? Can you kind of walk us through yes, how yes, you, yes, what yes, you're, why makes... you're using it? Yes, that makes perfect sense. You know, um, it just, you know, it just depends, you know, I may be, you know, feeling some type of way or, you know, or, or whatever, or for whatever reason, I just want to chill today or, you know, or, mm -hmm. hey, I just want to feel like feel this way today. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what I've been doing lately. And that's what I've been, you know, enjoying for the most part right now in my life. So. Mm -hmm. So when you take the Xanax, uh, what do you know what doses you typically take? Whatever a bar is, honestly, I've been okay. told it's a, yeah. Probably about a milligram or two milligrams. Right. Okay. And can you describe, do you feel a high from the Xanax? How do you feel when you take it? Yes, I do. Actually, I do feel a high. I, I typically feel relaxed, you know, mm -hmm. really not worried or not bothered, mm -hmm. as I should say. So it's kind of like a, a stress reliever? or Yes helps with anxiety. Mm, um, yes, so, it, so to say. Does it make you really sleepy or does it just relax you? <laughs> well, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, uh, you know, if you take too much, yeah, of course you'll get sleepy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sometimes uh, another thing I've noticed is uh, my behavior on it. A lot of people around me, friends, whatever, say I have a different behavior other than what I have when I'm not. To elaborate, I may be a little bit more irritable or I guess more of an ego. I don't know what it is. Uh, 
or whatever. So, so when you're not on it, you tend to be more irritable. No, or when I'm you're me, on it, I'm, when I'm on it, you know, I may be a little bit more loud, or you know, or just the effects of the drugs, happy, or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. So your behavior changes when you're on the drug. So Definitely. how are you normally versus compared to um, when you're on the drug, when you're on Xanax, for example? I'm going to say I'm pretty, uh, uh, I think I'm critical thinking, but when I'm mm -hmm. on it, not so much. You're just relaxed and you're not really thinking. You're just kind right. of I just in do, a state just, of relaxation. Uh, it's a lot of, a lot of decisions be off of impulse and such mm -hmm. things is, is that when I'm, you know. So when you're taking Xanax, do you also smoke weed with it or do you do it separately? I, I will normally, yeah. Every, mm -hmm. I mean, I smoke weed every day all the time. So, I mean, it is, yeah. So, but I have took it without being under the influence of marijuana. So, yeah. So you usually smoke weed. Do you ever do edibles or do you just smoke? No, just smoke. Just smoke. Okay. And comparing the high, if you recall when you were taking, say, oxycodone, for example, the high that you felt with an oxycodone compared to the high that you feel when you take Xanax, is that similar? Is it different? Could you describe how oxycodone, say, would compare to Xanax in terms of the effects that you feel? Uh, yes. If I can compare those two, actually, Xanax typically make you more, uh, I can say, happy. Mm -hmm. That's why I should say more happy and just relaxed. And that's the similarities with the two. Mm -hmm. If I can compare them, they both make you feel relaxed. Mm -hmm. But I say opiates make you give you more of a euphoric feeling, as I should say. Yeah, it's it's more of a the, the feeling. The feeling is more of like a body feeling than more of benzo. It's like a psych thing, if that makes sense. Okay. But you feel, so you would say more a euphoric feeling from an opioid than yes. a Xanax. So Xanax helps you feel kind of happy, yeah. relaxed. It's more of a psychological feeling. Right, right. And right. when you say it's a body feeling for the oxycodone, you feel it more just throughout your body or how does that sensation feel okay, like? Okay, well, I mean, one of the sensations of side effects, you know, as you guys will know, is itching. So that's why I kind of uh -huh. put that yeah mm -hmm. so it'd be more of that i don't get none of that you know with xanax or anything like that, any benzos or anything such. so if you had to pick a drug of choice um in terms of one that makes you feel the best which one would it be including marijuana yeah including marijuana including uh, cocaine ecstasy including considering your Marijuan experience with everything that you've taken <laughs> okay it would definitely be marijuana definitely and how does marijuana feel in comparison to those that you prefer that the best well, um I, i'm fully functional man um i don't really see i've never heard any side effects and i've never had any side effects from smoking weed so i mm -hmm. mean i'm pretty pretty much the same person it's just high you know it's just smoking weed you know it's kind of like a tobacco buzz but longer as i should say or, or something like that you know it's, mm -hmm. yeah and if you are smoking it daily, how many times per day would you say on average? Like if you just think of the last month, for example, how many uh, um, times a day do you smoke on average? At least two grams a day. So. And you partition that over the course of a day in terms of the number of times um, you smoke? You, yes. So how often do you usually, like in how many hours or every, is it what, every two hours, every three hours? Like how often do you smoke during the day? I'll probably say every four hours because mm -hmm. if it's twice you know if it's twice in a day if i smoke in the morning 
in the afternoon or before I go to sleep. Mm, okay, so. so usually once in the in the morning and then kind of afternoon evening type of right. And if you find that you're without marijuana or you can't access it a given day, if that's ever happened, do you feel any effects from not being able to get it on a oh, day to day no. basis? No, not at all. No. You don't get any kind of like withdrawal or any kind of symptoms. No, not at all. No. Okay. But do you crave it if you don't have it? I mean, I believe it's more of a habit than anything. I, like I, I get up in the morning and I, so it's more of a habit thing, but no, I won't get irritable or anything like that. And no, no. So it's more just the, the kind of the act exactly. of smoking exactly. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And you've been at our clinic for studies in the past, correct? Yes. Yes. Do you recall how many you've participated in over the years? Now with Atlas Science or mm-hmm. just as, uh, I say, I believe, four I should say if not three four okay and were those the trials where they were asking you to rate a drug like if you liked it and if you felt high were any of those yes, trials? yes okay so in relation to those types of studies do you recall which drugs you were given in those trials oh man <laughs> I believe the last actually the last study I did I believe it was back in excuse me August I mm-hmm. believe and I think it was for insomnia, so it had something to do with benzos, I believe. Uh, okay, so, yeah. And did it have a qualification phase where you had to first? Oh, this, this one in particular, no, no, it okay. did not. But you were just rating them on scales, the drugs. Yeah. Yes. And have you been in studies before where they had that qualification phase that you recall? Oh, yes. Okay. So when you were doing the qualification, do you recall uh, whether it was a stimulant or a benzo or opioid? Do you remember what those studies were? Oh, yes. Most of them were opioids. Uh So when you were going into the qualification phase, did you pass through the qualification phase when you came in? Yes. So how easy was the qualification phase for you? Was it really easy to feel the difference and and identify the the positive control of the drug? Yes, Yes, ma'am. It's um, it's fairly always easy just because I believe I'm not a heavy user or anything like that. So I could, you know, I understand or I can feel and know the difference when I'm under the influence of anything for the most part. So you felt that those were doses that you had no problem recognizing that that was the drug and the other was the placebo. Yes. And so when you moved over in any study from the qualification over to the treatment phase, let's say, were you able to identify again that same drug that you received in qualification or did it become more difficult to kind of feel the effects of the different drugs since there were more treatments? A little bit of both, actually. Sometimes it was, uh, yes, it was still fairly, uh, as I should say, obvious, but no, not as much because sometimes the drug that they're testing has different effects. So it, it, sometimes it may not feel as it did in qualification phase. That makes any sense? Mm-hmm. So it was a bit more harder. So you, yeah, um, and you had multiple that. drugs. Yes. Yeah, I could say that. Yeah. Oh, okay. And did you find that the questions, I mean, when you were probably would have received a question something along the lines of how much do you like the drug and there would have been a sliding scale uh, for you really like it or you really dislike it what typically makes you like a drug what is it about these drugs that you're looking for what would make you endorse something as having a high liking honestly uh something that's uh make you relaxed no Mm -hmm. just just relaxed honestly Mm -hmm. you know something makes you calm 
so calming, relaxing effects. But those are the kind of your uh, yes. favorite qualities in the drug. When you came into those studies, were they all oral studies or did you do any intranasal? Oh, no, I, I have the intranasal before. Okay. So when you did the intranasal studies, you're experienced with taking drugs intranasally from your past then? Yes. Right? Okay. Yes. So when you've taken drugs intranasally, has that just been cocaine or have you taken any other drugs intranasally? It's been uh, just cocaine for them. I mean, I've, I've tried uh, oxy once or twice, but that's about it. But oh, okay. yeah, definitely cocaine, definitely. And are there any things that you think, because we often work with pharmaceutical companies that are trying to make it more difficult to crush some of these tablets if you've ever encountered, for example, the OP oxycontins. They've made the tablets harder to crush. So we work with a lot of pharmaceutical companies that are trying to come up with ways to make it more difficult to crush and put it into a powder for injection or for right, right. Um, not. I'm oh, sorry to cut you off. Excuse me. I was just going to ask, how much of it would it put you off if there was a compound in there, say, that would cause a burning sensation if you were to take it intranasally? Or would that be at all a deterrent for you like if it was, say, any drug that you were experimenting with uh, me personally no because i experiment with cocaine so with someone who doesn't maybe so yes me personally no so that wouldn't uh, be a turn so if the drug couldn't get cut down into a fine powder so if you couldn't get it to a size you wanted would that be a deterrent like would that say, would you definitely say Okay, so it's more important to get it to a fine powder than it is uh, whether it has some kind of burning or something like exactly, that. Exactly, yeah. So when you've snorted in the past, what's the kind of optimal size of those powders? Is it really, really fine? Do you get it somewhere in between? What's kind of your ideal for snorting? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much in between. Pretty much, yeah. But larger pieces would not be? No, no that's not. Uh, no. Okay, so the, the particle sizes would make it more difficult. When you've taken drugs orally, have you ever chewed them or do you swallow the drugs generally? Like, for uh, example, with Xanax. Okay, that's <laughs> funny you ask me that. Actually, <laughs> yes, I have chewed them before. Yeah, I have. You know, it gets you to feel it faster. So, yes, I have hmm. chewed it before. And another thing I have did is let it dissolve in juice or let it dissolve in uh, water or something and drink it. So if a tablet then was designed, say, to not dissolve very quickly in water or was so hard that you couldn't chew it, would you bother with a tablet like that or would you not care? Would it not make a difference? <laughs> yeah, it bother me. Yes, it would. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're trying to get it into your system faster, right? That's why you're uh, yes. chewing it. Have you had formulations that were extended release or do you mostly take everything that's uh, immediately available? Both, okay. both. It, it really doesn't make a difference. Yeah, both. Yeah. It doesn't really make a difference to you if it's long acting or or short acting. Right. No, it doesn't make a difference. Yeah. Okay. Do you have a preference over having something uh, last longer? Yes, like, how important um, is lasting longer versus something that has a very quick onset? So as soon as you take it, you feel it right away. How important is fast onset? Actually, it's extremely important. Like you're taking these drugs recreationally, so nine times out of ten, either you have you know either the comfort of your home or around people doing something or something, you wouldn't want to take something that's so fast and acting, you know, so to say, while you're driving or, mm -hmm. or so to say, 
while you're here or doing something important. So, yeah, it, it is important. Me personally, I'd rather not have nothing to last so long, like a extended release opiate, because therefore, throughout the day, it comes on and off, and that could be irritable for some people, like mm-hmm. me, and, and yeah, like me. So, yeah. so, you'd rather just have it come off fairly quickly so you have... Right. I can control it. I can can control it. Exactly. So if there was a drug like a benzodiazepine, like Xanax, for example, but you had to wait an hour and a half before you really started feeling the kind of the maximum effect or the maximum kind of feeling of high, would you bother with a a drug like that? Yeah. I I mean, I still will as long as the problem, not so much how long it takes to kick in, but so much of how long does it last while it's kicked in. Mm -hmm. So long as it's not extremely long everything and i if it takes you know 45 minutes hour to kick in that's fine you know i know it's coming you know so it's no so as long as you can kind of uh, know it's coming engage when it's there and right. more importantly it sounds like you just don't want something that's really long acting something that exactly. kind yeah. of comes off so you can have more control over it okay right and you've mentioned you've dissolved drugs in solution. So can you kind of walk us through what you did in those cases and for which drugs you did try that with? Only Xanax. Okay, so yeah, you dissolved the Xanax. So did you find mm-hmm. that when you dissolved it, did it help? Did it get there faster than if you oh, just swallowed course. it? Yeah, when you dissolve, you know, you drink it, you feel it. Almost, I want to say instantly, but almost a couple minutes, yeah, you'll start feeling it. Yeah, and it get more intense. And I just got to watch what you do, how many you put in there, and how much you drink, and so on and so forth. So when you dissolve them, did you just dissolve the same dose that you normally take, like a single bar? or? Yeah, I, will, you... I will usually put three, say, in an eight-ounce Gatorade, something like that, and mm-hmm. I'll be sipping on it for about an hour. Then it'll be gone, you know what I mean? So so okay. as I'm sipping on it, I'm feeling it, and mm-hmm. then... Ah, I see. Okay. So, and is that typically how you take it? How the Xanax? Nah. Like you dissolve it or are that just nah. uh just sometimes, you know, depending mm-hmm. on how I'm feeling. Nah, yeah, sometimes. More or less when I want it to have control, I can control mm-hmm. my intake on it. I can, you know, yeah. Okay. So then uh, when you put that into the Gatorade and you were sipping it over a course of a few hours, that didn't make you more sleepy than how you normally would do if you just swallowed them? Actually, yes. Maybe because I'm extending it. You know what I mean? Taking mm-hmm. a little dose and a little dose and a little, instead of just taking all at once. So yes, I can mm-hmm. say that, yeah. And have you ever done any other experiments with the tablets other than the chewing and putting it into Gatorade or some solution? No, 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 no. Okay. no. So nothing like injecting or anything no, like that? You've never no. tried that? Okay. And then in terms of the situation with COVID and, and all of the lockdowns that we've gone through, it's been a crazy year of 2020. Has that changed at all how you've taken drugs, what kind of drugs you've taken, or how easy it was to find them? Honestly, no. Yet, just to list a little bit, not really. No. Lately, I haven't been really doing a lot of drugs recreation, you know, just, you know, Xanax here and there. So, um, and I smoke a lot of weed, so, you know. So weed, of course not, not really, no, not at all. So everything you've been able to, there haven't been any issues with finding stuff. And the stuff you're getting it, is it mostly like from friends or family or are you getting prescriptions for Xanax or is it? I can, from fr- friends or family, I'll say mm-hmm. that, yeah. 
Okay, so you've had a steady supply. It hasn't been interrupted with COVID. The other question I wanted to ask you, when you come into the studies, they're usually longer confinements. So you're there for sometimes, how long have you participated in? Like three weeks, four weeks when you've uh, come in? Yes, uh, I've done stay 28 days, so about a month. Yeah. Ah, okay, so you were there for quite a long time. So that's yeah. quite a bit of a different routine because you don't have access to be able to, for example, smoke weed with right. the frequency you would do. Do you find that difficult to transition when you come into the clinic and you're, you have to kind of stop using the, the drugs in the way that you normally would do in, in the real world setting? Uh, not at all. Not one bit. I think the whole key word to that is recreation. So I'm not mm-hmm. you know, addicted to anything or I, as you know, I don't have to have anything. So mm-hmm. when I come in here, you know, it's, Hey, I'm doing a study and it is what it is. No, I don't, I don't have a problem at all. Do you ever feel, so we're also looking at some other questions that we might be including in some of the studies, particularly the types of trials that you've come in and participated in in the past. And one of the things we were thinking about is asking people if they're craving certain drugs, uh, if they ever crave them or how much they crave them. In your experience with, I guess, more recently you use uh, Xanax and marijuana, do you ever find yourself craving these when you don't have it or if you've kind of gone for a longer time without getting it? No, not at all. Like I said, it's more of a thing my choice you know okay well I don't have nothing to do today I'll do this you know I'm, I don't have to work today so I'll do this so the the Xanax because I mean the 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 THC um, the weed is is sort of daily the Xanax you mentioned it was more um what twice a week or so right exactly so when you take it, is it always on the weekends that you're taking Xanax or it, nine does times it... out of 10? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, when you're taking it on the weekends, you're just doing it to kind of unwind and yes, relax. Yes. Okay. So it's kind of a, a weekend relaxation. Okay. So that, that was interesting. So happy, relaxed. Is there anything else that you want to share with us in terms of kind of what you've experienced with drugs and particularly because you've done so many different classes of drugs, like the ecstasy, the LSD, the cocaine, do you ever go back and use opioids or ever have a kind of a desire to go back and use, for example, an opiate or try cocaine uh, or anything co- like that? Of course. It may vary. I'm not going to be a certain, in a certain setting, uh, unfortunately, around a certain uh, type of people. And, uh, and it comes around, I'm like, hey, let me, you know, anything like that. So yeah, it could, yeah, definitely. But your your favorite right now is the Xanax in terms of the quality of high or? Oh, no, marijuana. So mar- oh yeah, that's right. Marijuana was the, yes. the, the favorite. <laughs> right, okay. Right, right. <laughs> and so for example, ecstasy when you had taken it before, how was that experience? It's more like uh cocaine. Really don't like it. Maybe because you know everything is upbeat, fast paced, mm-hmm. everything is fast, fast, fast. A lot of bad stuff can happen, you're moving so fast, not really paying attention to stuff like so on and so forth, you know. So so you prefer to mm-hmm. be on the more relaxed side than the kind of stimulated and hyper excited. Yes, exactly. And what was your experience like with LSD when you had tried it? How many times have you tried LSD? So, I was about six, seven times, I should mm-hmm. say. So um, I'm very, I'm fair, if, if not more, honestly, about 10, mm-hmm. 15 times, I'm, uh, I'm fairly used to it. Mm-hmm. You can't really compare it to anything else. I couldn't if I tried uh, it. Definitely some of, of its own. I couldn't really explain that at all, at all. Well, can you describe maybe one of your more memorable trips that you had on LSD? Okay, I remember one of the uh, first times I started, you know, experimenting with it. I was just uh, over the top happy. 
Yeah, man, everything was hilarious. And, um, you want to love everyone. I can just say that. That's all that I can say. You want to love everybody. Had a very positive yes, trip, yes, it yes. sounds like. Did you have any hallucinations or anything like no, strange happen? No, nothing. Not at, um, I actually, it's funny to say that a lot of people, you know, say that. I've never been one of those persons to literally see anything. It's more of a sensation that you, um, it's not a normal sensation at all. And if only you're under the influence, you can understand. I can't explain it. But it was a, a happy kind of feeling. Yes. It was something that you had enjoyed. You yes. never had a, a bad trip on LSD. No. 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 Okay. You're, you're lucky then. <laughs> <laughs> Some people have really um, bad trips. I guess it just depends on maybe dose or right, <laughs> purity. And if I can just uh, ask a few more questions about sort of your experience with the, the trials that you went through, the ones with the qualification phase where they were asking you about how much you like the drug. Did you find that answering the questions makes sense in terms of what they were asking compared to how you were feeling from the drug? If Actually, I feel like they couldn't have did, they couldn't have did it any better. You know, honestly, it made, it made a, a lot of sense. And, and they go uh, and explain it to you further. So they explain it to you a couple times before you even take a practice or whatever so and so the the drugs that you had taken as part of the studies the last one you said you mentioned you were in last august for an insomnia and you had been uh, given a benzo did the experience of taking a benzo in the clinic was it similar or relatable to when you take xanax at home during qualification yes and 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 uh, excuse me, it maybe have been summer before last, but I do remember some in particular. Um, it was a side effect that, you know, didn't nobody like, but other than that. So do you recall what side effect it was that had bothered you? Yeah, it was, um, excuse me for this call. When you went up, your mind is still going, you know, uh, paralysis. It was a sleep. Uh, okay. uh, yeah. That oh, right there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that, and that was one of the side effects you felt from one of the treatments. Yes. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, they would tell you, you know, you make, I guess the medicine worked. In other words, it was for mm -hmm. people who couldn't sleep at all. And that, uh -huh. it will put you to sleep, whether mm -hmm. you're up or you're, yeah, you're going to sleep. So, yeah. Okay. Could you tell the difference between the drugs when oh, you did you, the, how they felt? Oh, definitely. Okay. Yes. So when you were in the treatment phase, could you still identify which one you thought might have been the benzodiazepine compared to the other treatments? Yes. Yeah. So that was an obvious difference between yes. the treatments. Okay. So you didn't have any hard time trying to feel the drug effects when we we're in the main treatments of the study? No. no. And are there certain uh, side effects that would turn you off that would make you dislike a drug? <laughs> that one right there. <laughs> uh, yeah, that, uh, well, let's say it in this scenario. Let's say you got a Xanax high, uh, the same uh, kind of pleasurable, but it had, say, made you feel nauseous. Or is there a certain point where a drug might have side effects where even if it had a good high, it just might not feel so good? <laughs> you might not like course, it as much. <laughs> of, of course. If you do, you know, so much cocaine, your nose go wrong. Mm -hmm. So, you, you know... You give your, your nose time to heal. You keep doing it, and uh. it, it hurts. It does. It, you know, because it, it's eating up your nose, and you keep putting it on top of it, so it's like eating at your nose, and it's a burning sensation. It's, it's terrible. Does that stop you from continuing using cocaine when that happens, when it gets so bad? No, I don't think it stops anybody, <laughs> actually. No, no. <laughs> you just keep going. You're That's go through the pain. That, exactly. It's something that comes uh -huh. with it, exactly, yes. 
So, and that's, you, you felt that kind of that burning sensation and definitely, uh, definitely. irritating. That's why I think you, you mentioned earlier that the burning wouldn't really <laughs> deter for you if, exactly. if they added something <laughs> to, the, to the formulation. That's, that's interesting. So, well, and certainly the Xanax gives you a very different uh, high, the THC. I think that was really all of the questions that I had. <laughs> you did a great job answering them. Is there anything else that you wanted to share with us about your experiences or anything that kind of stands out in your mind on, or, or any comments or, or questions about the, the studies that you were on or any other comments that you'd like to share? No, it's not. I just want to say thank you guys for having me, coming back to visit for more studies in their future, if they give me a call and so on and so forth. But no, I don't have anything else, no. Okay, well, I want to thank you for all the participation you did in the clinical trials in the past. And I do hope um, you, you come again and enroll in one of our studies in the future. And I really wanted to thank you for taking the time today to come out and talk to us. Uh, we learned a lot. It's always very informative to hear the perspective from the folks that come to the clinic and participate in the trials and have the experiences with these drugs. We learn a lot from it when we design these types of studies. So I wanted to thank you very much for your time today. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a very interesting interview. So this subject happened to be a non-dependent recreational polydrug user, meaning that he had, as he mentioned, experience with multiple classes of drugs. Uh, and this is in contrast to our two earlier interviews that we had with uh, Dr. Kelsch. Uh, with the two subjects who were opioid dependent. So these were individuals who had substance use disorder to a more severe degree. So some of the things I wanted to talk about, uh, we talked about uh, a lot of things about his experiences in the clinical trials for human abuse potential studies, and a little bit about his life story. And seemed been seeing as a common recurring theme is that most of these drug users, whether they're dependent or recreational, start at a really early age, which we, we know statistically occurs in quite often. He started at the age of 13. But in clinical trials, if you've seen a lot of these subjects come through clinical trials, because we do studies both with the non-dependent recreational drug users and, of course, the opioid dependent predominantly in some of the cocaine. Um, can you walk us through a little bit of the, the nuances and the similarities and differences between the dependent versus non-dependent populations? Because some of our users may not be as familiar with the distinction of these types of drug users. Yeah, so if you're looking for a population of recreational users. Generally, it's pretty well defined in the protocol, and it's usually not a really high bar that they have to meet. So for example, for most opioid studies, they would have had to have used an opioid for recreational purposes at least 10 times in their life, and, and usually at least once in the last 90 days, because they want them to have some predict that they may be able to tell the difference between placebo and opioid and that they actually take these for fun. So we don't expect people in the screening visit to necessarily be positive for an opioid. And we generally have to do an naloxone challenge, but they check in, they're negative, and we've never had anyone who's demonstrated any withdrawal in the naloxone challenge. If you have an opioid use disorder population, you absolutely expect them to be positive at the time of screening for the opioid if they're because they're using every day or multiple times a day. And generally, if the screening is a long screen, maybe four or five hours, they start to withdraw right there in front of you. I mean, they've gone without and they start to sweat and things. So it's a definitely a different population, but they're looking for different things. I mean, generally, if you're looking for an opioid use disorder population, you're doing some sort of proof of concept or some sort of therapeutic intervention where this, for a recreational study, that's not 
That's not what we're looking for. So just some experience so that they can discern between placebo and the active comparator and that they would then be good raters in the treatment phase. Or, or occasionally, if it's a PK study, they just have to have experience, but yet they may even block the effect of naltrexone. They don't really want them to get high, but they still don't want to have healthy volunteers, maybe perhaps insufflate and opioids, so they look for a population of recreational drug users. So those are generally the two times that we look for that population, either in a PK study with an unusual route of administration or a human abuse liability study. Mm-hmm. And this population certainly is, is quite different from the healthy normal volunteer population. And I think as this particular gentleman had mentioned, he uses marijuana on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. So even though we think about these recreational drug users using sporadically, oftentimes we see marijuana being used with very high frequency. And yes. is that something that you're encountering? We have provisions in our protocols for positive THC because it is highly prevalent in this population, as we've seen made note in this particular interview. How often do you see it? I mean, what would you say would be the percentage of these recreational drug users that use marijuana on a fairly routine basis? Probably over 90%. Like yesterday, we had to check in. We had nine people check in and only one wasn't positive for marijuana, but they were all positive for marijuana at the screening visit. So that is by far their drug of choice. They don't even really consider it a drug. Like I, even in this interview, he was like, oh, marijuana too. They don't even, it's more like cigarettes mm-hmm. and alcohol. It's just something they do. It's not, and especially with the new sort of decriminalization of it, it's just not, that, that is by far their drug of choice. It's very strange because they'll come in and say they use it like four times a day. So you want to exclude people who are dependent generally that's protocol driven too. And so you do all your questions and they'll, oh no, no, I can stop at any time. And generally that's true. When they come in, we don't see people go through like marijuana withdrawal. Now we've had people who've tried to sneak it in, you know, with a vape pen or something, you know, they just like it. We don't see people early terming because they have to go use their marijuana even in a long study. But yeah, that's by the And the problem with that study or that drug is because it does stay positive so long, you can't expect it to be negative at the check-in. So we do just evaluate them for, you know, when did you last use and what was the route? And if it's positive, as long as they don't appear to be sort of intoxicated from it, Mm -hmm. then we let them continue, even though we don't really, we trust their, what they're saying, but we really don't know when their last use was Mm -hmm. um, because they're positive and we can't. We've had a couple studies where they've tried to quantify it, but that takes three days and that takes too long to get that data Mm -hmm. back. And that's really important to have that flexibility in these protocols because the nature of the population is different than the normal healthy volunteers where you can find Mm -hmm. healthy volunteers that don't engage in marijuana use. This population is very different. And if you don't account for that, you likely will not be able to find uh, enough subjects for these types of studies. So that's an important uh, distinction for folks out there to understand that these protocols have to be customized and tailored a bit to the populations that we're using in these types of studies. And it was very interesting because he did say he went through a month of confinement. And during that time, he didn't have any withdrawal symptoms to the marijuana, even though he has very regular use of it, nor did he have any craving symptoms, which was also striking. So they seem Mm -hmm. to have this absence of craving, at least what he was reporting. But do you 
see that when you have these recreational drug users confined for longer periods of time? Do you find them that that they start to get any withdrawal symptoms or do they have any kind of desire to get out and use them or are they really just fairly content in the clinic for those longer durations? Not that they report. I mean, if we did some sort of questionnaire, I, I don't, I feel like they tend to sometimes stay up late, you know, and I don't know, they, they all seem to like to use it before they go to bed. So I think that change when they check into the clinic, be one thing that is different that maybe their ability to go to sleep and relax at night is because then that affects their rating sometimes. Cause I'll tell them if you're up all night and we give you a sleeping pill in the morning, we're not going to be able to rouse you. You're not going to be able to do these vast questionnaires. So you really need to try to get a good night's sleep. But other than that, maybe just their sleep-wake cycle being a little off, they don't report it anyways, not as an adverse event that they're craving it. Mm -hmm. So many of the the types of even pharmacokinetic studies we do oftentimes in recreational drug users so that we can administer these uh, drugs that may have abuse potential to an experienced population, but not necessarily one with opioid use disorder because of the nuances with withdrawal. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Kelsch, you've done a number of studies with uh, cocaine and opioid dependent subjects. Can you kind of walk us and let the audience know how challenging it may be to manage the withdrawal when they come into these trials and they're getting put on to the study medications and just how that's managed and handled in the clinic? Unfortunately, most of the studies we've done with opioid use disorder, they've been inducted into buprenorphine, which works really well. So it's usually the first three or four days where they're in pretty serious withdrawal. In fact, you have to be in withdrawal in order to start the buprenorphine. But and we will lose a few people, you know, especially if you conduct them a little too early and then you precipitate worst withdrawal. They may not stick around to give it a chance to work. But yeah, it's, it's just a ton of staff support and give them what we call rescue meds, which would be you know, something to help them sleep and hydroxyzine to relax and ibuprofen for pain. So you just really have to do a lot of support and sort of let them know it's going to get better where you don't need any of that in a recreational study. And how is it with the cocaine uh, dependent population? Are they easier to manage than the opioid? They seem to be easier. They don't seem to have as bad as like the physical withdrawal. They don't, they're not nauseous, and sweating and as anxious. And they t- tend to, as far as the withdrawal doesn't seem to be as severe. Yeah, that's very, that's really interesting. It's a very interesting population. I mean, and we'll have more in this series to come with Mm -hmm. other uh, dependent and non-dependent drug users. And it's very interesting because some of them have had the LSD experiences as well. Um, This particular gentleman had a very positive effect, but we'll Mm -hmm. probably encounter some of the interviews where they had not so, um, some bad trips on it, but they're very, uh, they do tend to experiment quite a bit. And I think the recreational drug users are more because they are in their experimental, they're non-dependent. They tend to have a diverse background in in many different types of drugs. So we see Mm -hmm. in this particular case, stimulants, ecstasy, the LSD, and usually with the opioid dependent populations, for example, are they really focused on just the opioids mainly, or do do you see that they're using a lot of different drugs of abuse at the same time? I think they have a history of using other drugs, but they tend to be more focused on the opioid Mm -hmm. once they become addicted to that. I think they're putting all their resources and efforts into getting that. But we'll see some dual. Sometimes they'll be have a meth, methamphetamine. 
yeah, but to find it's, it seems like they're it's more of a historical than a recent mm-hmm. recent use. They'll try things to try to help with the withdrawals. So if they can't get it, they'll try other drugs to see if it helps. Then there usually are positive for other things. Like it's not usually just opioids. They usually come in positive for several drugs. And most of the studies I think we've done with opioids have been, they've been converted over to buprenorphine. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned that once they're on that, they're fairly stable. So you yeah. encounter issues where they still have uh, periods where they're still craving the opioid or is the buprenorphine pretty well contain that for the duration of the study? I think it helps most of the physical symptoms, but I don't, I think the mental, they still dream about it. They still crave it because when we've done craving scales, sometimes those don't go down as quickly mm-hmm. as sort of the physical objective signs of withdrawal, but they, mm-hmm. they still think about it a lot. Yeah. So I think those, uh, when we were talking about the craving quart questionnaires are probably more appropriate for the dependent populations mm-hmm. than they would be for the recreational users. The recreational users tend to be very good at answering the types of questions about the pharmacological effects that they're experiencing in the drug, like we do with the human abuse potential studies. So reporting on how high they feel or how much they like it. Um, but I think a craving question for a recreational drug user probably wouldn't be as effective given that they can go without for periods of time and they're not necessarily feeling those sensations of craving. Uh, they seem to be certainly more of an opportunistic population where they they take it if it, they get it um, mm-hmm. and they can go without if, if they don't have it. Yeah. So certainly from in a clinical trial perspective, they're probably an easier population to, to manage by far. Yeah. But we'll have more to discuss on this. Any other yeah. thoughts, Dr. Kelsch, on this particular interview or some of the other observations you've had in the clinic over the years dealing with these two very interesting but yet distinct populations of, of drug users in general? Yeah, I would say the thing that they crave the most and the hardest part for them in the studies are the um, the smoking <laughs> oh. cigarettes. So usually you can't, like if we dose early, their their restriction starts maybe an hour before but yet the smoking rooms close, so they can't smoke prior to dosing. And then it's usually about six hours, especially if they're hooked up mm-hmm. to capnography. Mm-hmm. And that makes them, they do get irritable and they do want to smoke. And then generally once they go smoke, they kind of get another rush, whatever the drug was, they come right. back and they sort of feel high again. They do crave nicotine, I guess. If we're talking about craving. That is a issue. Is that more severe with the dependent population or is it uh, just as bad for both the dependent and non-dependent? Both. They all both. they like their mm-hmm. nicotine. And even if they don't smoke that much, by the time they leave here, they're so, they just get bored and they start smoking more, unfortunately. But yeah, if they're a smoker, they tend, they're antsy and waiting for their smoke break. And that's another key important distinction when doing trials with recreational drug users or dependent populations is the fact that you will have to not only uh, allow, make certain provisions for positive THC, but also allow for smoking because that tends to be a majority of that population has current tobacco use. Mm-hmm. So that's another important key distinction, in which case there needs to be some allowances during the clinical trial for access to ventilated areas for smoking chambers like we have at uh, Alta Sciences in order to retain them. Because if you're keeping right. them for that long, I think you would have uh, very big retention problems if there wasn't a provision for allowing the tobacco users to be able to have access to, to cigarettes during the course of the trial. So it, these trials are very interesting. And we have a slew of publications that we can share with the audience. And the 
podcast series, we'll continue with some additional interviews with recreational drug users. We always learn a lot from these types of studies. We've been focused on doing a lot of the abuse deterrent formulations. And it was interesting as this particular gentleman was talking about manipulating oral uh, chewing and, and dissolving his Xanax into, into solutions. So mm-hmm. certain things for, for this population may work in terms of deterrence. And certainly the drug abusing, the dependent population is going to have very different motivations because they're oftentimes taking more aggressive routes of drug administration like intravenous and progressed much more into the drug use behaviors. But we'll have more interesting interviews. And if you haven't had a chance to see the prior interviews, those will be posted as well with links to the previous interviews that were conducted. And we'll keep you posted on some of the upcoming interviews as well. We always, as a clinic, learn a lot from discussing and talking to subjects in these types of studies because their patterns change over time. And I think uh, COVID has certainly, even though the accessibility has, um, they've been able to access drugs during COVID, you know, certain patterns of behavior and regional patterns change. We have a lot of synthetic opioids hitting the market. So drug abuse evolves over time and being able to talk to these subjects and learn about what's happening locally always keeps us also informed about some of the regional characteristics of what they're experiencing and what's going on in that population. So I think it'll be an interesting series of interviews for our audience members. So Dr. Kelsch, I wanted to thank you today. And I don't know if you have any last parting thoughts before we close off the session. Oh, just appreciate his candor and willing to participate in the interview. Always learn something from those. Yeah, they're great. And I'm very grateful that they're willing to participate in these trials and help us really come up with drugs and discover whether or not drugs have to be controlled substances or scheduled. So they're really, they take part in very pivotal trials for drug safety evaluation when it comes to abuse potential. So these are important studies for drug development pathway when we have CNS active drugs. So thank you. And we're happy to answer any questions that the audience members may have by email. We'll have links to our contact information. Please feel free to reach out if you have any questions about uh, drug abuse in general or how these studies are conducted in these populations. So thank you for your time today and uh, we look forward to having you back and join us on one of our future podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.